at the smallest level, although this is, also, this is itself a massive change, is bringing a, a whole new design paradigm to the way that we're designing technology in which the focus is not on these very simple metrics that are not uh, aligned with what people actually care about, but to really, it, it's almost, a, it starts with a philosophical project to get really, really clear about what is meaningful, what is valuable, what, what is the actual service that we're trying to provide, what, what, what is the way in which we want people's lives to get better individually and collectively. And then some of those things we can create increasingly refined metrics for and be tracking those. And then some of those things are just intrinsically unmeasurable. They are by their nature qualitative. Silicon Valley historically has no has very little in the way of tools to understand qual qualitative experience and the, the subtleties and nuance of phenomenology of our, of our subjectivity. We would like to give special thanks to the Ministry of Digital Affairs of Taiwan for their assistance. This podcast is released under a CC by 4.0 Creative Commons license. Good local time, everyone. Welcome to season two of Innovative Minds with Taiwan Plus. I'm your host, Sam Robbins. Innovative Minds is a forum for leaders in tech and politics to discuss how to solve today's problems with today's tools. Today, our special guest is Justin Rosenstein, founder of The One Project and co-founder of Asana. He's also the co-inventor of Google Drive, Gchat, Facebook Pages, and the Facebook Like button. He's also a founding advisor of the Center for Humane Technology, Hi, Justin. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. Hi, Sam. It's great to be here. I'm also here with Taiwan's digital minister and friend of the show, Audrey Tang. Audrey has been at the forefront of tech innovation and open source promotion for over two decades. She became Taiwan's youngest minister in 2016 when she was appointed as the head of Taiwan's public digital innovation space. When she was appointed as the head of Taiwan's public digital innovation space. She is now the head of Taiwan's newly established Ministry of Digital Affairs, or MODA, which is responsible for driving Taiwan's digital development. Today, we talk about tech for business and tech for society, and how we balance between the two. Welcome to the show, Audrey. Hi, good local time, everyone. So Justin, you've spent a lot of time thinking about how technology can empower people and bring people together. Your company, Asana, and other recent ventures suggest you think that digital tech has a great potential to aid society. Now, there's a lot to get into here, and there's a lot I want to ask, but let's start with Asana. Uh, so could you introduce this uh, platform a little bit and tell us where the idea came from? Yeah, Asana is a collaboration platform that enables teams to be able to work together more easily. So the initial impetus for this was I was working first at Google and then at Facebook, and just over and over again experienced this pain of we were working on these big ambitious projects with lots of people, and the thing that seemed like it was slowing us down the most, even more than the intellectual or technical complexity of the problems, was the coordination, was the work about work, was just making sure that this part of the team knew what this part of the team was working on and, and keeping everyone in sync. And it seemed like the tools that existed at the time were just really not built for that task. And so originally um, at Google and then at Facebook, built internal tools that would help to solve that problem and make it easier to collaborate. And they really took off within those companies uh, in a really exciting way that demonstrated like, oh, there's, a, there's a, real, a real pain and a real solution here. And so Dustin Moskovitz, uh, who's Facebook's co-founder, and I left with the idea of this is such a, this, it's such a powerful idea that you could develop a single piece of technology 
that could enable any team working on any problem to be able to work together faster and easier. Because every single thing that matters, all human progress that we might want to achieve, at some level comes down to teams of people working together. And so if a single platform could help accelerate all of those projects simultaneously, that felt like a, a really leveraged way to be um, in service to, to the world. So Audrey, I want to ask you, how does Moda handle kind of digital work and collaboration? Uh, yeah, we're currently a Google Workspace shop, <laughs> uh, but we do use a, a lot of what we call no-code uh, add-ons. There's a Taiwanese startup uh, called Regic that allows anyone with some uh, spreadsheet uh, composing capabilities to redesign entire workflows and they synchronize automatically uh, with database visualizations, machine training, and things like that. So our main idea is this citizen developer thing in that anyone within Moda that does like the way the workflow works, can just reconfigure the front end or even entire workflows and also share these new workflows as social objects for other people to collaborate upon. So we have like new ways uh, of uh, for the accountants, uh, for the secretaries and so on. They don't have to learn a programming language. They can just reconfigure their workflow like Lego blocks. That's the main idea. I've got exciting news for you, Audrey. Asana. A couple of years ago, added just those kinds of no-code workflow features. Oh, excellent! We should talk about yeah, we should talk about for, that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it'd be great to talk more about that. But one question I want to ask first is, you know, this company was started in two thousand and eight. What was the state of digital work and collaboration back then? I think the most innovative thing out there by far was Google Docs, Google Drive. Um, you couldn't even comment on Google Docs at the time. Th things were in a uh, a state where, yeah, people were relying on things like Microsoft Project or these very clunky enterprise software tools. And while it seems very obvious now because there's a plethora of different internet-based collaboration tools at the, uh, that are easy to use, at the time, there was this real perception of like consumer software where people build things that are easy and beautiful and, and uh, feel good to use. And then there's enterprise software over here as, as though the kind of people who, as though people at work are of a different species than the people at home using consumer software. And so at the time, uh, we were surprised by how radical people thought it was. We were going to take a consumer product mindset and build beautiful, easy to use software for people at work. But that feels fairly straightforward in hindsight. So you both just mentioned this idea of kind of no code add-ons. So Justin, could you tell us a little bit about what this means and you know uh, how you're adding it to Asana? Yeah, Asana has workflow features where you can make rules that um, normally would require a software engineer to, you know, in the past would have required a software engineer to configure when someone assigns someone a task, kick off this set of actions or send a uh, update this other third party system, send this message. There's all these complex workflows that historically either you needed to write your own custom software for or hire people to do manually. And it's just this kind of soul sucking work about work that everyone was doing multiple hours a day in, in, in some cases, um, or you were using very clunky, expensive enterprise software that uh, itself requires a professional IT person to, to, to set up. Um, and, and then every time you want to change it, you have to call IT. So these days you can just create in Asana, and uh, as I already said, there's other tools that support this as well. You can kind of drag and drop the, the toolkit. Uh, there's a tool, toolkit of things you can drag and drop and assemble as an end user. Oh, when this thing happens, kick off the set of workflows and the set of actions. And just uh, 
yeah, I mean, we have customers who say this saves people in the company just hours and hours per day. So Audrey, how does, how does Moto use these kind of tools? Yeah, uh, so the main idea here, uh, it just, as Justin said, is that the people closest to the work should be able uh, to invent new workflows. So just two very quick examples. Uh, for example, uh, when people onboard uh, Moda, there's this whole slew of personnel work that needs to happen because we have multiple office sites, uh, we have uh, to print the badges, we have to uh, give them a laptop, we have to configure things and, and all that. Now, Previously, the HR uh, is in charge of all this, but because we're a new department, there's just this whole slew of entire departments uh, being moved to Moda. Uh, and so each person has a different way of expecting these onboarding process to happen, depending on which ministries they uh, hail from, right? They originally were from. So by opening up the whole process of onboarding to fit the particular expectations of whether that person came from the National Women Council, the Ministry of Economic Affairs, or or the National Communication Commission and so on, uh, it enabled them uh, to do uh, like invoicing, onboarding, like all those uh, chores in a way that feels most comfortable uh, to their original interface. And this is, I think, important, especially in a uh, plural uh, culture, because previously, if we go with this vendor, uh, then this vendor would dictate the front end interface, the experience of going through such uh, daily routines. But now when each staff becomes um, an expert uh, in just reconfiguring uh, their routines, then uh, this actually frees up a lot of uh, work hours because they no longer have to adapt to a strange way of working. They can just keep working the way they used to work before, but just with this magic power of uh, sharing the real-time numbers and the outputs and the workflows uh, with other teams that came from different cultures. Yeah, it's very democratizing and changes the relationship that users have to the systems because Historically, as a user, you're stuck with whatever the power structure, whether that's you know the IT department or your your boss's boss, decided like this shall be the workflow. Um, but enabling anyone to not only create but also like experiment and iterate makes uh, that aspect of work much more creative and mm. enables people to not just be not just be rote doing the work themselves, but uh, yeah, get. I mean, ultimately, I think one of the most exciting things about technology is it just takes things that are the humans are capable of, but experience as drudgery and takes them away and automates them and then leaves the much more human work available as the, the thing that we can focus on, which yeah, can be much more enlightening. Exactly. And and the second uh, use case is actually a personal one uh, because I prefer to see uh, into the future. Uh, we have the future calendar uh, where each team's uh, focus is um, aggregated in a way uh, with themes and topics and so on so that I can see in a very visualized way, in a 3D uh, like spatial way uh, to feel uh, like where we are at this points of potential and where's the horizon of potentials and so on. And so uh, I like personally coded uh, with a startup, also a Taiwanese startup called Heptabase, uh, the rules of importing those no-code uh, workflows so that people still continue about their work, but uh, it just aggregates whatever people's current goals are, their objectives and key results are, and just detect the similarities between them, uh, find hashtags for them, and just aggregate it into a calendar of the future that I can uh, 
project on. And I did that without writing much software. Mostly I just tell the language models uh, of the results uh, that I would like to see. And they just go and look at the Regic databases and pull together just enough information to make a good visualization of a uh, future calendar. So I think, yeah, I think this um, ideas of uh, programming by uh, stating what you expect to appear on the screen is becoming really uh, a really good experience now with co-pilot technologies and so on. Yeah, yeah and I think uh, LLMs are by far the most game-changing, to state the obvious. Uh, the mm -hmm. new AI models are the most game-changing thing that has happened in technology in a very long time. And it's, uh, it's, it's the most excited I've been about uh, doing product design in a long time because now there's this opportunity to rethink at this really fundamental level. Like the, the, the basic rules no longer apply of, of when, when you have intelligence kind of for free in this different way. And so, yeah, no code tools where you could drag and drop seemed so sophisticated a few years ago and now seem antiquated relative to like just talk to the computer in English or talk to the computer in your native language and it'll figure out what to do. So we've been touching a little bit about, you know, this, the state of cutting edge technology and, you know, we're mentioning LLM and, and AI. And I want to keep going on that a little later. But before we do that, I want to jump back in time uh, about 20 years and look at kind of um, how we got here and, and um, what you both were doing before. Because Justin, you studied at Stanford in the early 2000s, and this was just after the dot-com bubble. And it was also when companies like Facebook and Google were just starting to gain prominence. So, you know, we've been talking about your later ventures and what you're working on now. But, you know, what was the mood back then in Silicon Valley? I'd say it was boundless optimism. Uh, there was a real sense that people and so many good stories of some pair of people working in a garage, building a simple prototype. And within a small amount of time, the number of people getting value from what they had built, expanding to millions of people and later billions of people, a real sense uh, that civilization was on a trajectory of progress. That yes, there were still problems, of course, but that those problems were largely being solved more and more, in fact, faster and faster through the increase of technology and you know, life expectancy and quality of life and income and all, all these key variables were up and to the right. And the mood was, oh, we in Silicon Valley are some of the biggest drivers of, of those things being able to go up and to the right, the tech, this boundless optimism for the potential of technology to improve the world. And implicit in that was a real boundless optimism about capitalism, about the idea that, that uh, there was this alignment uh, between what was profitable and what was good for the world. And companies like Google showing like, we, we, in fact, we can even provide this search engine for free. Uh, and by running these little innocuous ads alongside it, we will make a lot of money. Our users will be very happy. Our advertisers will be very happy. Win, win, win. And the whole world gets better, uh, which if you can't tell by my tone is a, a narrative I now I'm very skeptical of, but at the time uh, seemed incredibly compelling. So you were so you were on board at the time. I I didn't didn't know of any other worldview at the time. Yeah, <laughs> I want to ask a similar question to Audrey because at that time you were based in Taiwan but working for Silicon Valley companies, right? 
more or less, right? Uh, so th th that was my second startup, Arnet, uh, basically uh, taking a page from decentralized version control, meaning that people around the world can fork a project to uh, work on particular features, but somehow magically those new features can merge together into new versions of the product. I was uh, very excited about that possibility, so I was working both with uh, our national academy to build something like GitHub, uh, so that everybody can use decentralized version control to build their pet projects, but uh, somehow aggregate them to make something much bigger, uh, as well as consulting with Silicon Valley companies uh, in bringing those tools uh, into the enterprise. So I was working with a company called Social Text uh, that is enterprise social, basically taking the microblog, blogging, wiki, decentralized version control, collaborative spreadsheets, and so on, and somehow transform uh, large enterprises' internal culture uh, so as to embrace this kind of decentralized innovation. This actually, uh, I think even just judging by the tone by which both of you describe that period, I think it, it's clear that Justin's attitude seems to have changed a little bit. Uh, but I want to ask you, Audrey, you know, it sounds like, uh, and from talking to you before, that was an optimistic period for you, but you're still optimistic now. Oh, yeah, so, even more optimistic, actually. <laughs> so, so tell us about, okay, so how did you get even more optimistic from that mm -hmm. time to now? Yeah, uh, I think the main variable uh, that we see at a time uh, is about concentration of, of power. Uh, there are certain uh, tendencies, as Justin just described, in those innocuous advertisements uh, that will uh, promote a culture of normalizing surveillance because in order to deliver precision-targeted uh, advertisements, somehow the search engine will have to figure out what you really want, and that entails a lot of surveillance. Uh, and uh, uh, back then, um, people in Taiwan, I think, are uniquely aware of that because we're very close to a jurisdiction, the PRC regime, uh, that starts building this kind of state surveillance apparatus. So we had our uh, Snowden moment much earlier uh, when the uh, Golden Shield, when the Great Firewall was being built uh, in our vicinity. Uh, and so we were always quite wary of anything that over-concentrates the surveillance power. And uh, our main research back then uh, was in privacy-enhancing technologies, decentralized technologies, and it feel, did feel like we're in the niche, uh, like it, it was not what people cared about at the time. But I think uh, currently, uh, after a couple of decades, people do care about privacy, uh, and the words like end-to-end -end encryption and so on uh, are no longer jargons, like people actually know what it means. Uh, and so I'm quite optimistic that this is a direction that the entire global society is becoming aware of, that this over-concentration of uh, asymmetric surveillance is actually bad for the civilization. So Justin, I'd love to hear you respond to that, considering you haven't got more optimistic. <laughs> well, optimistic about what? I, I, I don't, Audrey, have you become more optimistic that if companies simply optimize for maximizing profit, that that will automatically lead to more good for the world? <laughs> not, not at all, of course, but I'm optimistic that people are becoming aware that it's not the way to get. <laughs> 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 right, exactly. So I, I have some optimism owing to the fact that people are increasingly waking up to the problems of the profit-driven capitalist economic model, to the problems of, of unbridled, uncritical techno-optimism. Um, I still think that civilization is heading in a direction that is uh, not conducive to the flourishing of humanity and of life, and I'm quite concerned about that. 
but the increasing levels of awareness about this are are encouraging. And in general, I just don't, um, I don't even think in terms of optimism or pessimism because that models reality as though it was uh, deterministic or probabilistic when really we, we as humans are agents that have free choice. And while that's easier to see at the individual level than at the collective level, we, as a society, we're making choices about what directions we want to go in, like the the economic motives and profit incentives and, the, and business models are not uh, laws of nature. They're things that can change over time and that we can redesign. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of things that are that are exciting and a lot of things that are uh, uh, have become corrosive to society uh, in general and in, in technology. I do want to ask you, Justin, a little bit. And I understand it's, you know, obviously much more complicated than just, you know, feeling great about the world or feeling bad about the world. Um, but, you know, you, you touch on this idea of before kind of um, feeling that we were on this path of, you know, civilizational development, you know, led by or kind of in partnership with Silicon Valley and, and technology um, and that kind of, you know, companies, the, you know, Silicon Valley capitalism was benefiting society, benefiting civilization. And now you're not so convinced of that. Um, what was kind of the changing point for you or how did your worldview start to change on that? Yeah, and to be clear, like you said, it, it is a, a complicated matter and you know, I, I'm extremely grateful for digital technologies in many aspects of my life. Uh, and I think there's many ways in which they've been a huge boon to the world. Uh, and, and at the same time, I think there are many places where we see it eroding our sovereignty, our, our social and political cohesion, um, uh, the minds of our children, like there are, yeah, very, very dark effects of technology and of business generally as well. Uh, I think I, yeah, started to question that over the course of working at Asana as I really started to question this, this basic progress narrative, this basic narrative that I had grown up with, um, I think is popular in certain, especially certain parts of the Western world that, as I said, things are up and to the right, things, everything's going well. And to the extent that some things seem worse, that's an illusion. That's just because, you know, now you have more access to news and you can see the suffering of other people. But if you really look at the data, things, things are actually much better than we think. And since then, at one project, we've done a major research initiative to look into to what extent is that true. And uh, we think that like the, the data does not back that up in any way that yes, in, in certain things are going up and to the right, but similarly, if you jump out of a plane without a parachute, your velocity will increase for quite some time un until you hit the ground. Uh, and similarly, the, the, so much of the progress that we've experiencing has been at the cost of the destruction of uh, basic natural resources, the, the destruction of the, the atmosphere, of, of, of basic ecosystems upon which life depends, as well as to many forms of social cohesion, community, mental health, uh, and these are at, at least as important metrics as the things that, that do seem to be improving. And in many cases, the things that are, that are improving, I think, are a bubble that are only increasing temporarily and, and will, it, that we will hit tipping points, especially in terms of ecological systems um, and other sort of global catastrophic risks that could really that have a, a very strong potential to make those seem like a, a civilizational bubble. I, I think this question of kind of... Um you know, worldview on where we're heading is interesting. And, you know, obviously none of us would be here if we didn't think that technology could be an extremely powerful force for good and is extremely transformational. So, of course, I'm not saying that you think 
you know that Indeed. it's it's all doom and gloom. But then I mean, I mean, maybe the way maybe the way I'd put it, in fact, is that like when you live in a society in which the incentives for enterprises are aligned with the good of the planet and its people, then that those incentives will will result in people creating technology that is aligned with the good. And it, it is this incredible opportunity to just continually, uh, it's an incredible opportunity for us to harness the power of, of techne, of skill, to make lives better and better. There's still significant concerns, even if the incentives are aligned around unintended consequences. And I think that, that that's a huge problem as well, is that we often have the hubris to, to where even, and I, I've experienced this firsthand, building technologies that like, like uh, Facebook like button that at the time, all I could see was the positive upside, but in hindsight, there were all these potentially deleterious effects. Um, so there's, yeah, in a world in which incentives were properly aligned, and we had really strong processes for and feedback loops for ensuring that for both both anticipating unintended consequences ahead of time, and then course correcting when consequences arise that we did not did not anticipate. I think technology is, is amazing potential for humanity. Uh, we don't live in that world right now. I think the the small follow up question I want to ask is: I imagine on kind of the macro level questions or kind of values and you know all these points that I think both you and Audrey are relatively aligned, but you've chosen kind of two very different approaches, and your messaging strategies are very different, right? Audrey, you kind of play or you know you act as this very positive kind of pushing technology for good figure, and Justin, you play you know you are more of a caution, let's kind of, you know, be critical approach. So I'm wondering how you both ended up at those messaging strategies and why you think that's important. Uh, who first? Uh, let's, let's hear from you first. Let's hear from Audrey first. <laughs> right. Um, sure. So um, I think that the main message really from me is that coordination, democracy, and so on, these are also technologies. These are social technologies that get better as people put their minds on increasing the bandwidth of coordination and democracy in general. And uh, I think this was not considered, you know, the, the cool, the progress narrative. Uh, there's a lot of narrative in the Silicon Valley when I was there uh, about uh, heroics, uh, essentially, right? One, one person, one genius. Uh, looking at a product market fit, invents an entire category, disrupts uh, existing institutions and so on. But instead of disrupting democracy, maybe reaffirming democracy, reaffirming coordination, although it did sound less heroic, is actually the more impactful among things. And I think Taiwan is quite unique in that we face a lot of this emergent societal scale risks all the time. So we had to overcome them with societal level technologies that allow for this kind of coordination. So to me, um, I'm more seeing this as a lab of possibilities that anything we prototype in Taiwan uh, may be of value uh, to the world because uh, the world is also facing societal scale um, threats, albeit maybe a couple years uh, before, um, like people did wasn't aware of it. I think we're all aware of it now. Yeah, then same question to you, Justin, kind of how did you end up choosing this approach or this messaging strategy that you're now using? Well, the, I would say that the majority of the time, um, yeah, I, my, my intention is to present a balanced message. Um, if anything, I've spent far more of my time communicating the potential benefits of technology and working most of my career as a technologist. Uh, and I'm still in the projects that I'm working on now trying to build technology that is in service to life. 
I think it's, I just have a, a balanced approach to it of um, technology is not by its necessity, technology is not automatically good. Technology is not automatically of service to the world. It is, uh, it is an open-ended tool and depending on how you design it, it can lean, it can be used for good or it can be used for ill. And the specifics of how we design platforms really have a direct impact on, on what are the consequences that you're going to get. So I'd say my main message is the necessity for us to be incredibly mindful and thoughtful and conscious and intentional in how we're choosing to build these services and, and design them. I really strongly agree with Audrey on the, the positive potential. And I'll go even further to say, increasingly, we live in a world in which coordination is not only ever more valuable, but ever more necessary. Because as civilization has become globalized, the problems that we face are, are of course, global in nature. And we're increasingly interdependent. We increasingly have the situation where we, we're, we're, we're all going to go down with the ship together, or, or potentially we could all thrive. And it, in, that, in a moment like that, digital technology has the I don't know of anything other than digital technology that has such a radical potential and you know, internet technology has such a radical potential to enable us to coordinate at the large scales that are required for the um, collective action that we need. So I want to move on to talk a little bit about how to make technology better. And I think part of that is understanding some of the unintended consequences that can come along with design decisions. So Justin, uh, you mentioned a little bit about the like button before um, and how at the time you thought it was a really great invention um, but now, you know, maybe your thoughts about it have changed a little. So can you tell us a bit about the like button and how it came about and how you're thinking about it now? Sure. An invention always felt like a strong word for a single button. But <laughs> the, the origin was uh, my teammate, Leah Perlman, and I were talking about, she had this idea for props. Like, we could make it easier to give each other kind of like a virtual high five. And we were talking through... Yeah, when we had the, we were, Facebook was much smaller at the time, but we had this growing network of people who were all connected and both being young and very optimistic. We had this question we were exploring, which was how, how could you make it the path of least resistance? How could you encourage the promotion of positivity and love on this new platform? And kind of reasoned our way to like, well, the, the way to make it as easy as possible is to make it one click. That, that, that's the ab, ab, mathematically the easiest way to be able to spread positivity. And so can we just put a button on every single thing that's just a little bit of a little ping of positivity and how lovely that would be and brighten people's day and just make things a little more lovely and pleasant in the world. A little more lovely and pleasant in the world. Uh, I think that, and, and in some ways, I think there are moments in my own life when I've posted something um, important to me or vulnerable and gotten positive feedback from friends and looked through the list and felt a little more connected and that it, that it did succeed in those ways. But over time, I've started to see the ways in which that design did not anticipate the ways that when applied at scale and given actual human nature, things would play out. And the experience I had that actually made me start to realize those unintended consequences was I was when iPhone came out and smartphones were becoming popular, I started to see more and more people 
staring at their phones in moments that they would otherwise have been socializing. We're now enough years out from that that it's hard to remember that that, there was a moment when that seemed strange because now everyone stares at their phone. And occasionally I would look over people's shoulders and see what was distracting them so much. And a good portion of the time it was that they, their phone had buzzed because they had gotten a like uh, and, and it was taking them out of the moment. And that felt like a real shame and cost because presence is is the deepest, most valuable thing we have, uh, and and to be distracted from that presence, and then of course over time to see the way that social media and and the the addictive quality of likes, the ways that I mean it's, it's obviously not just likes, but the ways that especially teenagers, there's a whole culture around self-worth becoming tied to the amount of positive feedback that you get on social media and crafting a self-image in order to optimize for that positive feedback. And then like is such a simple emotion and it doesn't reflect what we actually value. It's just this very, very, very simple piece of information as opposed to, you know, was this valuable? Was this consistent with my values? Did this make me think? Did this change my mind? Things that actually matter. And so you might like something that reinforces your values. You might like something or you know, a, a quick little emoji reaction to something that angered you or upset you or, or uh, gave you a, a more basic bottom of the brainstem instinct. And that can lead to things that are more sensational and more polarizing and uh, more that give you a quick hit of, of dopamine be becoming the things that are most popular and most shared. And that leads to this, uh, you know, the spread of misinformation, that leads to polarization, that leads to the ability for corporations and states to engage in, in mass psychological manipulation. There's all these things that, that result from the, the basic dynamics of, of social media. But by the time I started to see these negative effects, I had already left Facebook. Mm -hmm. And initially, I was sort of presuming, oh, well, these are clearly unintended consequences. These aren't good for users. These aren't good for our mission. This isn't making people more more connected. This is this kind of fake facsimile of, of positive emotion. It's, uh, it's like junk food. It makes you feel f full but empty. Um, and at first, I, I sort of assumed, oh, well, the company will iterate on this and, and, and improve it. And try and because there, there are design changes that you could easily make that would make it more conducive to to serving people's values. And ultimately, I think that the reason those changes haven't occurred is because those changes are things that will hurt the metrics that the company is tracking. Not necessarily directly profit, but engagement or or user growth or the various things that are the the things that the companies the, the, not just Facebook the things that companies in general are measuring as these proxies for success that are, that at first can seem aligned with mission. You might be like, oh, well, the number of minutes someone spends on this website, surely that correlates with how much value that someone is getting. But that assumes this model of humanity in which we're perfectly rational and we're operating and every choice we make is in service of our of our own good, which is completely ridiculous. We know that things are addictive. We, we, we all have this visceral experience, especially with social media of, or I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't have this visceral experience of uh, being pulled into things almost against your, your conscious will. Um, and so it, it, the misalignment between the success metrics that companies use and indeed the metrics that are typically aligned with their profit incentives and actual human flourishing, it's in that delta that, um, that, the, that the badness creeps in. 
Thank you so much for that answer. I just want to ask Audrey if you want mm. to respond at all. Yeah, um, when I was working with uh, Social Text uh, around 2009 or so, um, we discovered that anything that causes a context switch, meaning that you're working on one thing, you're present at a moment, and then a push notification came and you had to work on something else that actually decreased uh, workspace productivity. So push notification, um, if uh, taken in isolation, uh, may be a good thing. Touch screen uh, in isolation may be a good thing. And the like button, also a good thing. <laughs> but the three things uh, mixing together is like a mixed drink, a, a cocktail, that makes them much more addictive uh, than before and that uh, led to a, a, a very sharp decrease of productivity if we mix the three together. So we all have to make some choices. And my choice was that I uh, renounced touch screens and only uh, interact with my phone with the stylus and I also disabled push notifications uh, for all external uh, apps so that I can continue uh, to use the like button uh, but I don't uh, mix the other two things that will add to the addiction. Uh, however, that does require Require a lot of uh, like experience, design, uh, expertise, and uh, the passive least resistance is, of course, is just to stay with the default. But the default was that all of these are on uh, at the same time, and I think that uh, creates a very different mental landscape for the entire new generation. Uh, so, Justin, I want to ask you about um, the documentary, The Social Dilemma, which you are featured on, um, and you know, I recommend everyone go watch that, and you know. There's a lot of interesting um, discussion in that documentary about uh, social media design and the issues that come with that design. Um, but that, you know, already a few years out from the documentary. So what's changed since then? Not as much has changed as, as I would like. I'll say that. I think the main thing that has changed positively is that people are more aware. People, there, there is more cultural understanding of what, what is going on. And I think you see parents more rightly concerned about uh, and, and taking steps to limit the exposure that people have, to limit the exposure that their children have to these technologies. But the, the main point that I was trying to make, or, but the main thing that I was referring to in the, in the documentary has, has not changed, which is the fundamental dynamics and the fundamental incentive structure that leads to these problems. The, the core point I articulated was that we've seen for decades now, the way in which the financial incentives of corporations lead to the valuing of but the ways in which we've seen that the uh, seen the ways in which the incentive structure and the uh, constant urge to maximize profits and the, the incentive ways in which we've seen the, the incentive to maximize profit leads to the destruction of nature the way because we live in an economic system in which trees are worth more dead than alive and whales are worth more dead than alive and for so long as you live in an economic structure like that, of course you're going to have the natural outcome of we're going to be de destroying trees and, and killing whales. For so long as you live in an economic system in which water is worth more when it's bottled up and sold as a product than flowing in a river, you're going to have the poisoning of waters and, and companies pr profiting off of bottling it. For so long as you have a system in which some human beings are, are more profitable to the system when they're behind bars than when they're out living their lives, you're going to have a prison industrial complex, you're gonna have a military industrial complex. And for so long as we have an economic system in which children are worth more money when they're staring at their screens than experiencing their childhoods, you're going to have rampant childhood addiction to staring at your screens. Like, if you explained to an alien 
how the economic incentives of, of planet Earth work, they would be able to predict for you all of the different catastrophes that we're experiencing on planet Earth, as, as well as the places that things are going well. But the, the, the design of the, of the economic system, of the incentive structure, is the thing that creates the outcomes that you see in the world in a really, really fundamental way. That has not changed. Uh, and because the social media companies are still subject to that exact system, because they're still working within the profit maximization context, because they're still ultimately beholden to a board of directors that's beholden to shareholders and indeed have a legally binding fiduciary duty to maximize profit, uh, you're continuing to see the, the rampant increase of polarization and misinformation and filter bubbles and psychological manipulation and addiction and mistrust and eating disorders and, and all these problems that, again, naturally arise from from the, the fact that, that the incentive is to keep people staring at their phones. So it almost feels a little... I want to give, I want to give credit that I think there are people inside these companies, uh, you know, in, including at the top leadership, who see these problems and are staffing up teams to try to address these things. But I think the, the fact that we see in the data the ways in which the problems are, are still occurring is because at, at some, not just the incentive structure, but some fundamental way in which the systems are designed, they're not designed in a way that is conducive to well-being, uh, and and like they need to be fundamentally rethought at this very basic axiomatic level. So I want to ask Audrey if you want to respond to that as well. Yeah, indeed. Um, um, in issues like pollution and so on, uh, usually uh, what we eventually <clears throat> agreed on is a very clear liability structure uh, where we trace the source of such pollutions and attribute them to particular actors or configurations of actors uh, and then just just find them, right? Uh, and if people uh, become aware of the imminent danger, uh, such as the ozone uh, a couple of decades ago uh, being depleted by particular combinations of uh, chemicals used in refrigeration, uh, then the entire industry banded together to invent a uh, new replacement that does not deplete the ozone. So I think the, the main response uh, here should be one of not just awareness, but clear attribution and liability. Uh, so for example, in Taiwan, uh, Facebook and other platforms, if they feature uh, a investment advertisement, uh, but featuring somebody who is actually not uh, a um, somebody who uh, purports to be right a, a defake a synthetic avatar of say Audrey Tang uh, recommending you to buy some stocks and so on. Uh, then we treat this not just as an infringement on copyright or uh, things like that that are uh, more or abstract, but rather uh, this is something that the social media were profiting from. Right, the advertisement budget uh, goes to the uh, social media platforms, and they were indirectly. Um, profiting also uh, by people getting scammed uh, into such uh, pyramid schemes or things like that. So, uh, and because of that, uh, we passed a law uh, that says, uh, you know, if they do not verify the identity of people posting the investment advertisements that could lead to scam, then, well, they can still post those advertisements, but they, they become directly liable to whatever scams uh, damage. So when the people sue the scammers for damage, the social media company 
enabled it without verifying the credentials of per persons uh, posting that advertisement uh, should also be liable for the same damage. Uh, so this is just one anecdote, one particular issue of uh, like misinline incentives on social media platforms. But we uh, think that there are much more than just scams in investment advices. But if this formula works, then we should look for more um, like incentive alignment using this liability structure. Yeah, so that's one you know, example of a potential way to address this issue. I'd like to hear, Justin, how you're thinking about kind of how we, how we get past this or where we go. And I know it's a very huge uh, problem and there's no you know, silver bullet to change entire economic incentive structures. But you know, in the short to midterm, what are you thinking about that's kind of a meaningful way to address these issues that you've identified? At the smallest level, although this is, also, this is itself a massive change, is bringing a, a whole new design paradigm to the way that we're designing technology in which the focus is not on these very simple metrics that are not uh, aligned with what people actually care about, but to really, it, it's almost a, it starts with a philosophical project to get really, really clear about what is meaningful. What is valuable? What what is the actual service that we're trying to provide? What 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 is the way in which we want people's lives to get better individually and collectively? And then some of those things we can create increasingly refined metrics for and be tracking those. And then some of those things are just intrinsically unmeasurable. They are by their nature qualitative. Silicon Valley historically has no has very little in the way of tools to understand qual qualitative experience and the, the subtleties and nuance of phenomenology of our, of our subjectivity. But if you're building systems that are having direct impact on people's subjectivity, it's, it's critical that we get to the point where we can understand that, incorporate that, and design systems that are respecting that nuance and building for how can we, how can we help people to not just, to, to not be simply behaviorists and be like, what's going to get someone to click? What's going to get someone to, to, to stare longer at a particular video? but instead to inquire into what is the underlying subjective experience that someone is having and is, is that, is their presence, is their, is their quality of, uh, of, of, of being, being, uh, being served. And then you need feedback loops. You need to not just design with those, with those qualities in mind, but to observe and measure and, ha be, and talk to users and see what are the consequences of the systems that we're building and very mindfully, consciously course correct and not just hide behind like, oh, well, it increased the amount of time that they're spending on the site, then it must be a good thing. But understand the, the actual deep impacts and then continually modify our services um, to, so well. to move more and more in the direction of the impacts that we're trying to achieve. At the larger scale, as you mentioned, that it is ultimately the incentives. I think in general, you get what you incentivize. And so, while while there's no magic bullet to while, while there's no magic spell to while there's no magic wand to be able to flip over the entire economic system overnight, I think one thing that companies could start to look at is to have at first a uh, what I would love to see happen is to see more companies move from a structure in which they are governed by a board of directors that has a fiduciary duty to shareholders to a model in which they are governed by the people. And I don't mean that in the sense of the kind of existing democratic processes that we have necessarily, but there are models of participatory democracy, and Audrey has been a pioneer in, in exactly these kinds of systems, 
where you can get many, many people who are affected by a system to participate in deciding what should the future of that be. I think it's it's just and equitable when the people who are in control of something are the people who are affected by it. And today, that's not at all the case. Corporations, the, the people who are affected by those systems, is a completely di- is a very different set of people than the people who are who are making the decisions, who are the uh, effectively the the shareholders uh, and the executives who are beholden to those shareholders. So, in, in if you move more toward companies essentially being in the commons, seeing them as common resources that are governed by by the people in service of society. And that is, doing that is, of course, completely contrary to the existing system, the existing profit incentives and motivations. Um, we could talk about what are the stepping stones you could take to move more and more that in that direction. But I think keeping our eye on like the the systems that govern our lives should be governed by us, the people. So Justin was just talking about this idea of kind of democratic design principles and digital commons and, you know, bringing people into the process. And Audrey, this is something you've been thinking about a lot for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit more about this idea. Yeah. uh, When I was uh, in my second startup working with uh, Taiwan's National Academy, um, the main idea behind that uh, was called Creative Commons. Uh, and the Creative Commons uh, is a movement around the world uh, where people want to change the incentives uh, by the copyright system so that the people can share uh, whatever they have created and some with the condition that you can change it, but you have to keep sharing uh, what you have changed. Uh, and one of the most prominent example of Creative Commons share alike is Wikipedia. And there are many other projects uh, projects, OpenStreetMap and so on, uh, where people just treat this encyclopedia, this map, um, this like common knowledge base uh, as a commons. And if you look at the governance structures uh, that have grown out of those uh, commons project, there is one big um, difference, right, uh, is where the funding came from. Instead of uh, returning uh, the, you know, people's attention in the forms of capture, shareholder, advertiser, uh, profits, uh, Wikipedia simply asked people uh, to donate uh, to Wikipedia. Um, so I think there is uh, something to be said about alternate funding models uh, to the commons, whether it's through government grants or to through uh, donations and so on. Uh, there are also uh, successful like entrepreneurship projects built by a foundation and not for profit, but owning a subsidiary uh, for-profit company to make it a with-profit company. Of course, the Mozilla Foundation uh, and the Mozilla Corporation that builds the Firefox browser and so on uh, come to mind. These are early examples. But I think uh, there are a new generation of uh, entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, that look at these uh, potentials uh, enabled by alternate funding models and really create new movements uh, based on new funding models uh, to build their businesses from. So whether they're uh, like the first time startup just decided to build their startup um, as a not-for-profit like Vivi Lean uh, that we have interviewed on the first season of Innovative Minds and so on, or people on their second or third uh, startup and they really want to try a different funding model, I think this kind of capped profit or with profit is becoming um, somewhat mainstream among the Taiwanese uh, social entrepreneurs. And, and this idea of commoning, of the people who are using and being affected by some system being the ones who govern it and are in control of it, 
is, I think, such a critical concept and so pivotal to us moving as a society in a direction away from the incredibly inequitable, racist, sexist, pro problematic structures that we have today in which you have this elite capitalist class that is in control of so much of the power and wealth in the world to a world in which, thing, which power and resources are equitably distributed. And commenting, there, there was a, essentially a smear campaign in the 20th century against commenting and this famous essay about the tragedy of the commons that had the idea of, oh, if you don't have the state or if you don't have market forces and private ownership, you're inevitably going to get uh, the, the destruction of these resources. And that's just not true. That, that was a, there was a intentional smear campaign that, that was, that was perpetrated by the people who benefited from it. And Eleanor Ostrom is a economist who won the Nobel prize in economics, who really looked into the, the actual history of commenting, which is that for basically the entirety of human history, it has been the most common form of the way that we manage resources and power. And it is highly, highly effective because you only get a tragedy of the commons in the case that you have a bunch of people who aren't coordinating with each other. When you have coordination, when you have people creating rules and norms and self-governing, then you're able to, whether it's a forest or a fishery or the air, you're able to effectively have democratic participatory control of these common resources. And historically that's been done at, at small scale because that kind of coordination was only possible at small scale. But as we live in a more globalized society where we have more common resources that you know, like like the atmosphere as a whole or internet commons that um, that are not just at a local scale, but at global scale, we we fortunately now have the digital tools to also be able to coordinate and govern at global scale. Yeah, indeed. Um, so um, like currently uh, in Taiwan, we're uh, working with, for example, the Universal Service Fund and so on. Uh, that's uh, my ministry's mandate. And just in discussing uh, with Spectrum Allocation and Universal Service Fund, uh, the Director Generals of Resource Planning uh, just recently quoted the, all the principles of Ostrom uh, in the internal uh, ministerial meeting with other Director Generals. And I think there really is a natural affinity uh, between uh, the um, director generals, the Korea Public Service <clears throat> that has stewardship uh, to this common resources digitally, like spectrum um, and numbers and addresses and so on, as well as the civil society organizations uh, that also is uh, piloting a, a much better way of turning the investments of energy and investment of attention into something that benefits the commons as a whole. So um, I always stress the importance of people first uh, PPP uh, or people public-private partnership in that if the social sector, the social entrepreneurs and the public sector, the career public service can figure out uh, new mechanisms to incentivize commons investments, then actually uh, it creates uh, a legitimacy for the private sector actors to act toward these new uh, incentives. And that's partly why uh, we have uh, reshuffled our budget priorities for our, for example, digital transformation uh, fund, the T-Cloud fund, to prioritize <coughs> subsidizing any uh, social entrepreneurs, including co-ops, people working on long-term healthcare, anyone who can prove that they're uh, making uh, investments into the local or global commons, and they get uh, more subsidies, more business development opportunities, and so on first. So I think it also doubles as a very good uh, public sector um, entrepreneurship, uh, incentivizing 
strategy because the younger generations, they do put more energy into entrepreneurship if they can see that it is actually benefiting the commons, not just arbitrary shareholders. That's really cool. Yeah, I want to ask you, Justin, a little bit about how you think about this more specifically in your own work, right? You know, we've, we've been talking about these really big questions of incentive structures and encouraging, you know, the commons and encouraging more democratic participation. What does this mean for you as someone, you know, who is running businesses and is, uh, you know, in the private sector um, to this day? Yeah. I actually um, now work full time on a social venture, a nonprofit called One Project. Um, I'm still involved with Asana as a board member and advisor, but primarily work on One Project whose purpose is, is precisely to be working with communities in order to develop new models of economics and democracy that are more participatory, more effective, more fair and equitable, more in harmony with ecological regeneration. And it's for precisely this purpose of uh, the, the dominant economic and political models we believe are just fundamentally broken and are essentially the operating system. They're deep down there as a, as a root cause from which you can then understand all of the social ills that we're experiencing as arising from this basic set of economic and political rules and incentives. And so the to, the first step is to start by, by taking the existing experiments that are happening all over the world in sometimes experiments in new novel forms, in some cases just the continuation of pre-capitalist forms of much more participatory fair systems of economics and governance, and bringing more power to them, helping them to, to become more resilient against the, the dominant system and to become more scalable and use, in some cases, social power and people power, but in other cases, use digital technology to be able to take these more effective, equitable ecological systems and enable them to be more, more and more of a meaningful competitor to the dominant hegemonic capitalist market state system. I, I think there's another part of this that I, I want to ask both of you about because we haven't really been talking about it as much, which is uh, what role, uh, if any, either uh, you think, you know, government regulation and kind of um, policy plays in this because I'm thinking about in Europe, you know, we have the GDPR and other legislation to um, kind of force social media companies to, you know, put certain responsibilities on them in terms of what information they have to give to the government and limits what they're able to do. Um, so aside from kind of thinking of alternate models, Justin, what, what do you think about the kind of policy side of this question? I think policy plays a critical role and, and in a way a very necessary role in order to contain the collective action problem. So you know, collective action problems or they're sometimes called multipolar traps are situations in which if you don't have coordination between actors and each actor acts in its own self-interest, you get these effects that are bad for everyone. So nuclear proliferation is an example. I think every country would prefer that there were not any nuclear weapons, but because they, there's no airtight way to ensure that no country has nuclear weapons, it's in each country's, not, not just interests, but almost required for national security to build, to build that up. Or, you know, the, at least in America, there's so much sugar in food and I think that's the result of like any food company that doesn't invest in that, their, their food is not competitive in the market. And I think you see the same thing in technology where 
and I, I see this excuse over and over again, or this, this, this reason where you'll have leaders at social media companies or AI companies that say, yeah, we wish that we could make this less addictive. We, we, we agree it would be safer if we were deploying AI at a slower rate, but if we don't do it, someone else will. And so in a lot of cases, those companies, the people behind the scenes actually are asking for, for regulation because they that will enable them to do the right thing without worrying that an unscrupulous competitor won't then just take advantage of them being an, an ethical actor. So regulation is the tool that we so far today have to be able to, to bind those, those kinds of traps. In terms of what that should look like, I think, one, we should be using the existing regulatory model as, as broken as it is you know, within AI, for example, you're seeing um, the EU AI Act, or uh, for applying to both AI and social media, there's the in America the Algorithmic Accountability Act. And I would love to see these pieces of legislation actually move to to be passed and be able to help find these problems. At the same time, there's a, there are things that are fundamentally broken about the existing governance models. Um, that it, that they are quasi-democratic. You have in America the, this two-party system. It's very hard to get things done. There's data that shows that what the what the United States government is is likely to do is highly correlated with what the wealthiest people in America want, and has extremely little correlation with what the average person in America wants. So ideally, what we would use we would do is use the existing state regulatory powers to create laws that enshrine a new, more participatory system into law that where, where the people are more directly involved in defining the rules of these systems, which is to say, like, like, some of the, like many of the experiments that Audrey has, has done, or there's, there's various forms of new systems or very old systems of democracy that are more effective, more collaborative, engage more people's voices than the kind of 51% vote system that we've come to think of as democracy. If we could develop those participatory governance systems and essentially have companies report not to a board of directors, but report to the people, report to these democratic participatory governance processes, and then have regulation require companies to, at a minimum, take into account the voice of those participatory democratic processes, that would be a step in the direction of us moving away from everything being about profit maximization and toward the people being in control of these systems that control their lives. Yeah, same question to you, Audrey. What role do you think, you know, regulation and policy plays in this? Yeah, um, I totally agree that uh, a deliberative uh, system institutionalized to get democratic inputs from the people uh, to share the agenda setting power with the people uh, is paramount. Uh, in Taiwan, uh, for a few years now, uh, many years now, uh, people are used to uh, the e-petition system where people can start these new ideas, get 5,000 signatures, like recently people petitioning for a four-day uh, work week, uh, and so on, uh, and then just expect the journalists to take it, amplify it, and for the ministers uh, to take it seriously, to respond to it in a point-by-point -point factual basis, and so on. So some sort of participatory system is already within uh, 
our regulatory uh, institutions. Uh, what I would like to add now is also for some way to, instead of waiting for the private sector to respond point by point uh, to the um, synthesis documents of people's deliberations and petitions, what if the largest private sector companies also have a pipeline similar to the one we have built around the national participation system so that, for example, when people surface a new harm, a new injustice uh, enabled by AI companies, maybe the AI models can be actually retrained and fine-tuned to reflect that particular concern that people have surfaced uh, somewhat automatically, right? In uh, software development, we have this idea called continuous integration, meaning that when people finding a, a issue and experimenting with fixes and so on, people who sign up uh, to the nightly versions, to the beta versions of those software get to experiment those fixes first uh, and then see whether it actually causes more harm or actually address the problem. And only when the beta testers uh, or the nightly testers are okay with it, uh, do they actually go into the product release. And by adopting continuous integration, uh, the software quality, including with bug bounties, including with uh, like working with white hat hackers and so on, improves the convenience and the security of the product. So what we're now working toward uh, is what we call alignment assemblies, which is asking people what they see as wrong or harmful of the current generation of language models and other generative AI, and somehow figure out a way to take the matrix of democratic inputs and use that to retrain the AI so that it responds to people's uh, collective will. So this is something that we're experimenting with and we'll launch the first ones around August, September. Yeah, and Audrey and I are both, well, tell me if I can mention this, but Audrey and I are both advisors to the Collective Intelligence Project that is using, at first, Polis, but is looking at using these kinds of participatory democratic tools in order to get input from the people on what should be the direction of artificial intelligence. And OpenAI themselves recently started a um, an experiment on democratic inputs to AI that I advised on, and I think it's a, a good start, although they're there's a lot further for them to go. They're, they're starting with having people participate in deciding basic things about the uh, political orientation or uh, willingness of ChatGPT to say certain things or not say certain things. But ultimately, my hope is that that is a stepping stone toward a much more radical democratic experiment of allowing the people to decide deployment schedules and, and when harms need to be considered and evaluated and who should be the beneficiaries? How should there be compensation to people who to, to people who provide input? It's a whole host of like deep fundamental questions about what is AI for? What where should this, these incredible supercomputers and superintelligence be applied? That if they remain in the hands of the uh, sort of free for all uh, free market capitalist system, the, the very incentives that we already have will continue. And to the extent that we already see that companies use the intelligence and resources they have at their disposal to continue to hurt the environment um, or, or to strip mine our consciousness for in order to stare at ads, artificial intelligence makes that incredibly accelerated. But if we can make sure that democracy is at the heart of deciding and, and participation and um, participation and wisdom, a, a wise democratic process is at the heart of deciding what AI is used for, and AI could be this incredible benefit to humanity. So I think, talking about how to make AI more democratic, I think one potentially interesting issue is that um, with these new generative systems, a lot of the people who create it, 
it seems like their approach is a little bit like, well, we don't fully understand how this works. And there's always a certain degree of, I don't want to say randomness, but unpredictability about, you know, what outcomes it's going to give and kind of um, something that it seems like it won't say, but there's, you know, some kind of roundabout way that it, it then will end up saying that, uh, you know, will end up saying that. So do you think that causes difficulty in terms of democratic participation and public feedback and getting people involved in the process that kind of, um, to a certain extent, even the experts don't fully understand how these systems work, you know, let alone me, <laughs> you know, for example. So let's hear from Justin first. Yeah, there's a general problem, that, and I think in many ways democracy over time has gotten a bad rap because there's when you when you think of the the ways we do democracy today generally of 51% of a popular vote of a citizenry that has not had time to think carefully about the issues or responding to charismatic candidates, then it feels like a populism that leads to very poor decisions. In order for democracy to be not just legitimate, but actually wise, you need systems that, that empower the participants to have the information that they need to have the, the real and, and the time to think things through deeply. So citizen councils is a great example of a democratic system where you take a representative sample of the population and pay them and give them the time and space to come and meet together in person you know, for essentially months at a time and learn from the experts, learn deeply about systems, the, the, the systems that they're going to be governing, deliberate, talk things through, and then come to decisions that are much wiser, more thoughtful, more mindful than if they were just voting when they didn't understand. Now, you're pointing out that in some cases, even the experts don't understand, but that we can understand at least the ruling decisions can at least understand the extent of the experts understand. And within AI, um, I think one of the most exciting things I've seen is Anthropic's model, Anthropic being one of the main competitors to open AI, um, of constitutional AI where you essentially provide a constant, you write a document to the LLM, to the AI system that explains the values, that it, that explains you should do this and not this, you should optimize for this, you should always be good in these ways and avoid being evil in these ways. And while it's not perfect, so what I've seen in the research so far is that it's quite effective in shaping the sort of uh, behaviors and uh, apparent attitudes of the systems. So who should be empowered to write that constitution? Ultimately, the people. Ultimately, the, the people who are going to be affected by these AI systems should be de democratically defining the constitutions that then define the behavior of the AI systems. So, so yeah, Audrey, why don't you jump in? Yeah, certainly. Um, so uh, I remember when we uh, met face to face in the Asana office, uh, I bring with me this MacBook, <clears throat> this laptop uh, with uh, 96 gig RAM uh, and demonstrated that something approaching ChatGPT 3.5 can be run entirely locally uh, with reasonable speed. Uh, and using exactly the sort of techniques Justin just mentioned, now it's approaching ChatGPT uh, 4 uh, level capability Abilities, but still running entirely locally. And the the one thing that differentiates this local model with the earlier uh, experiments is that I can just tell it, uh, like this is 1,000 uh, frequently asked questions to Audrey, and this is how Audrey have uh, answered them because we have this transcript. Uh, and then I can tune this personal assistant uh, to basically see the world uh, from the worldview that I have expressed uh, from my previous transcripts. And 
and I've been able to do this training using new techniques like QLoRa uh, over just 24 hours on a single computer without anybody else's uh, GPUs. And I think this democratization of training and fine-tuning capabilities using constitutional principles specific to specific communities uh, is the other requirement. So the one requirement, just already mentioned, is for OpenAI and Anthropic and so on to pre-commit to take democratic input into their uh, meaningful decisions. But the other thing is that each and every individual, just like in the early personal computer days, with a spreadsheet that fits, uh, you know, like VCCalc, very small memory, being able to experiment with new ways of fine-tuning uh, such technology so that everybody understands uh, the kind of uses and abuses and how to counter those abuses instead of uh, arbitrarily uh, leaving it to the top labs to say, okay, we will do the retraining, but only after six months, only after 12 months, or things like that. We should also be able to organize in a grassroots fashion to tune our community models as viable alternatives uh, from all previous experience of addictive technologies, only when everybody understand the actual harms, the specific harms, and have the ways to put words into those collective um, concerns, do the large companies actually pivot and respond to the people's concerns. Which is exciting, but I'll say, and I'm curious what you think, but it also is very concerning to me, the uh, democratization of LLMs and the fact that that's, and I knew that three point, GPT 3.5 level was possible to run locally. Mm -hmm. you're t this is news that you can even, you're getting close to GPT 4 level. Um, does it concern you that, yeah, even if the main labs are doing their best to create good constitutions and have uh, ethical models that you could have unscrupulous actors all over the world, just like taking those models and retuning them for more nefarious purposes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. yes. The uh, Guanaco, uh, which is the model that I was referring to, of course, I can give you uh, like the whole transcript uh, and for it to absorb and tune. But of course, you can also instruct it to uh, imitate a scammer or things like that. But I think um, it's pretty good now that we have a wide understanding of how language models work and don't work so that when people have already exposed uh, ourselves to ChatGPT and other technologies, now I think is probably the time for us to also collectively look at the harms and misuses with the, like on par with ChatGPT for democratized models. But I do agree with you, if it gets even more advanced than that, uh, then uh, the whole equation changes. It will be like not just uh, like a small fusion reactor, but a small fission reactor <laughs> in everybody's living room. And that would change the dynamic uh, tremendously. Yeah. So we're almost out of time today. And I think both of you have, you know, discussed this really interesting model of um, for social media and also AI of how social, economic, political changes can change uh, who these systems are accountable to and how that changes incentive structures um, and you know how by changing incentive structures we can change how this technology works and who it works for um, so as we're ending today I want to ask what um, social media specifically with a different incentive structure would look like you know what would quote-unquote ethical or quote-unquote better social media be like and how would we interact with it so Justin you know um, what what could social media be like? It's been a few years since I had my uh, social media talk track memorized. <laughs> um, 
the fact that we now live in a world in which we the fact that we now live in a world in which our we have these devices that are connected where every single one of us can transmit information back and forth is incredible and so if you imagine that we were developing systems on top of that basic internet infrastructure that were refined to be in service of not our not maximizing us clicking not maximizing us staring but maximizing for our values and we could take each one of those values and consider what is the potential so a value like connection or community while social media gives you this kind of fake version of that where you quasi feel like you're hanging out with your friends because you're seeing them doing fun things real community comes from being together in person from from uh from a, de a depth of connection and there's ways in which social media could be really helping people to come together in person to the extent that we value knowledge and learning social media rather than amplifying the most radical outrageous clickbaity voices could be helping us to make sense together and learn together and amplify the things that are most important for us to learn to the extent that we value a a fair and wise society social media could help be helping us develop empathy for each other's perspectives there's all these ways in which we could be really introspecting and doing the philosophical exercise and the democratic participatory exercise of what are the things we care about and then that becomes the design exercise of how do we how do we make these systems ever more con continuously improved to refine them to be in service of, of our deepest values uh, ultimately of course that is a different incentive than what we, what they what the companies currently have which is to the the things that will cause people to be more engaged are the things that maximize profit. And so I think I'll, I'll just end by saying like, because that profit maximization incentive is so the water we swim in, to the, to the, 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 we, we are the fish in the water that is capitalism. It's hard to even imagine what a different world could look like. And yet, uh, I love this quote from Ursula Le Guin, we live in capitalism, it, its power seems inescapable, but so did the divine right of kings. And that's not going to change overnight, but to the extent that we can collectively keep in our imaginations and, and keep it as our goal, the dismantling of these existing power structures that are that serve a small number of people uh, at the expense of, of, of the many, we are able to move more and more in a direction where we can, if we can change the incentive structure, that will lead more naturally to people developing these technologies in alignment with 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 uh, with social good. But even prior to that, we can, as individual designers and creators, start to be more mindful about what are the decisions we're making, and be willing to make less money in exchange for aligning with the things we actually care about in our hearts and that we want for our society and for our children. So, Audrey, same question. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I think on an individual level, uh, what we have described in our relations uh, to social media and technology can be referred to as just mindfulness, uh, whether it's uh, the push notifications, the use of stylus, uh, and so on. That is mindfulness on an individual basis. But what I think social media has the potential to become is for a group, a community, to be also mindful, to reflect on the common values, the shared values 
used to facilitate uh, both the catharsis of identifying the most polarizing sentiments in the community, surfacing it, but also surfacing the bridging narratives that bring those polars back into something that people also deeply care. It was just that there was no room to express uh, those deeply care. So I think the platforms to foster mutual care and also to promote this community-scoped mindfulness is well within reach uh, in the current generation of technologies. And we do see many social entrepreneurs starting building toward that vision. And once we do have that, then it's not hard to imagine it being scaled up like Wikipedia did scale up toward different cultures, different languages, and so on, so as to build bridges across uh, culturally, uh, ethnically different uh, groups. But first, I think community level, where people do meet face to face, and technology is just one way to enable people to make the most use of each other's mindful states uh, when we meet, uh, do meet face to face. That is the right level of energy that I would like to see more social entrepreneurship and innovations putting their attention to. So this has been a really interesting conversation, but sadly that's um, about all we have time for today. Mm -hmm. um, so just before we get going, I want to ask if either of you have any questions you'd like to ask each other. Audrey, you've had so much success bringing new forms of democratic participatory tools into Taiwan. I think there's people like myself all over the world who are so inspired by your work. Do you have a vision for how you'd like to see that work become more popular and expanded? Um, are you doing taking any steps in that direction or are you focused on just make Taiwan systems as good as they can be and allow other people to be inspired by that and adopt what they see fit? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh there's some of that, which is partly what this uh, Innovative Minds podcast is about, is to see whether the Taiwan model that we have cooked up here is also broadly applicable to other jurisdictions and also learning from digital leaders from other jurisdictions to make sure that we also incorporate the latest and the greatest in uh, plurality and in many other uh, eco-commoning-based thinking. So continued exchange of models, I think, uh, is really the thing that I'm focusing on. Uh, but uh, in my individual capacity, uh, just as you, I'm advising and even joining as a team of the projects like Collective Intelligence Project. And that goal is not limited to Taiwan as a jurisdiction, but rather to really take this model and talk to the, I would include actually OpenAI in the sort of with profit for purpose companies because they're technically a nonprofit <laughs> governing a company. And and see if uh, the governance structures that we have prototyped in the municipality and the national government level also works uh, to a startup like Urban AI or to an established uh, enterprise and so on. So that, uh, in a sense, is what we did around the turn of century when the term open source was coined. It was a marketing campaign for the free software people to convince the largest for-profit companies to turn into essentially a common uh, with profits company like Mozilla did uh, at the time. So I think I spent maybe 20% uh, also of my time to uh, like pet projects like these to try to radically transform existing uh, players in the private sector so that they also see the value of democratic input. Audrey, do you have any questions for Justin? Oh, yes. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, when you see, say that uh, you, as part of one project, uh, fund and discover and coordinate uh, newer models of eco-commoning and of uh, social entrepreneurship and community organizing, are there particular combinations of ideas or projects that you find the most interesting uh, to the people uh, that has the highest basic reproduction number? That is to say, ideas that kind of spread themselves that you've been discovering in the past few years yeah i mentioned the citizen council model or um citizen assembly sortition as it's technically called in which you get a representative sample of the population together to deliberate i think de de deliberation is such a critical ingredient yeah I'm, insp I'm inspired by a story i've heard about the constitution editing process in ireland in which there's a the con there's controversy about gay marriage and if you had taken a popular vote of people in Ireland, the, the conclusion would have been that gay marriage would be illegal and unconstitutional. But there was a process of sortition of a group of people in Ireland coming together and discussing, and some of the people in that group were themselves gay. And in the course of deliberating, and in the course of not just intellectually deliberating, but getting to know each other as people, there there was a uh, a sharing, in the course of getting to know each other as people, people's minds changed in that group and by the end of the process, they decided that gay marriage would become legal in Ireland. That's an incredibly inspiring example of how people, not, not just voting and, and sort of yelling at each other on social media, but actually getting together in person, hearing each other's stories, hearing each other's perspectives can create incredible outcomes. Similarly, um, one of the projects that one project has sponsored is called Up by Four, where they did an experiment of bringing together a, a sample of people to discuss COVID and it was an incredibly controversial topic. They did this, you know, right in the middle of the pandemic. And when they started, people were wildly divergent in their perspectives. But by the time they had gone through this multi-month facilitated process, there was an incredible amount of convergence and understanding. Uh, I think that that is a process that can be at the heart of new democratic models that then can be assisted by much more modern technology like artificial intelligence. Uh, AI presents this opportunity where you could build a system that literally could talk to every single citizen in a country or every single person in the world and allow them in their native language and the way that they think to express their desires, their values, their needs, their, their wishes for the world, and to integrate all of that into a plan that accommodated as many people's desires as possible. The, the, the potential there for using AI to do that kind of participatory governance and even like economic planning and resource distribution mm -hmm. is, is, is incredibly exciting. Exactly. Yeah, it's like uh, level two assisted uh, facilitation and deliberation. It's not like level five uh, autonomous in silico deliberation, right? So I think uh, this kind of level two uh, AI in the loop assistive uses uh, of the language models and so on for deliberative workshops and such communities is, I think, one of the most interesting um, like overlapping of the concerns that we have just been mentioning in this episode and uh, I'd like to discuss more in the future. How do we facilitate more in Taiwan and beyond such deliberative inputs uh, into the entire system? So yeah, that's all we have time for today. And I want to say a big thank you to Justin and Audrey for being with us today. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. And live long and prosper. And of course, thank you for everyone to listening or watching today. Um, 
And if you like this podcast, please check out more information and videos at taiwanplus.com. Find us on YouTube at Taiwan Plus. If you like today's episode, be sure to subscribe, share, and let us know what you think. See you next time. This episode was produced by Taiwan Plus and Deep Soul Studio. If you would like to check out more, you can find season one of Innovative Minds already available on all podcast platforms, YouTube, and TaiwanPlus.com. 